This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon-Court welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Genscript. Genscript is the leading gene, peptide, protein and antibody research partner for fundamental life science research, translational biomedical research and early stage pharmaceutical development. Since their establishment in 2002, Genscript has exponentially grown to become a global leading biotech company that provides life sciences services and products to scientists in over 100 countries worldwide. During their tenure, they have built the best-in-class capacity and capability for biological research services, encompassing gene synthesis and molecular biology, peptide synthesis, custom antibodies, protein expression, antibody and protein engineering, and in vitro and in vivo pharmacology, all with the goal to make research easy. Today's presentation is titled Development of a Potential Recombinant Protein Vaccine in E. coli. (laughs) and is being presented by Dr. Patrick McAtee, Director of Tropical Medicine, Director of Downstream Process Development from Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. McAtee is currently involved in the development of vaccines against human parasites. He has spent his career at the cutting edge of biological post-genomic drug discovery and vaccine development. This has included the development of a life-saving vaccine and being an early pioneer in proteomics, where he established Bruton's tyrosine kinase as a key intermediate in osteoclastogenesis and cancer. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you may have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Patrick at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash recombinant protein. So now over to you, Patrick, for the presentation. Hello, my name is Pat McAtee. I'm going to uh, talk to you today about making a vaccine against a uh, well-known parasite. And so as if you can see my screen, it's expression, purification, immunogenicity, and protective efficacy of a recombinant nucleoside hydrolase from Leishmania donovani. And this is a vaccine for presenting, preventing cutaneous leishmaniasis. And as I will give you a little bit of the background of leishmania and uh, also uh, throw in some things that you might not expect in a purification talk. So on to the next slide. Leishmaniasis, it's a disease uh, primarily located in the third world, but not surprisingly, as times have changed and uh, as uh, the world and the globe has changed, uh, we're starting to see leishmaniasis in the first world. Uh, There's two main forms, cutaneous, which typically causes skin sores, and uh, they leave ulcers, which usually have a noticeable scar, but that's about as far as disease goes. Then there's visceral, which is also known as black fever, which can affect several internal organs. And that's potentially fatal if untreated. And you see fever, spleen and liver damage and anemia. I'll show you a couple of pictures in a minute. The organism exists in two states. It exists as a flagellated permastigote, which has a little flagella to get around, and that's an infectious form. The permastigote is transformed to an amastigote inside the phagocytic cells of the host animal. The amastigote is transformed back to a promastigote in the gut of the sandfly. So it's a cycle, and the sandfly will infect a human, a dog, a rat, or various mammals, and the cycle begins. And when the uh, sandfly feeds on the infected individual again, the cycle uh, comes back around and restarts. The risk factors, of course, because this isn't primarily third world, are poverty, malnutrition, deforestation, lack of sanitation, and urbanization. Now, you could treat this with drugs, but chemotherapy is highly toxic, and there's many cases of resistance or recurrence. Also, to reach some of the initial populations, it's not so easy. Vaccination on a large scale would be preferable. So initial vaccine against 
cutaneous leishmaniasis was no more than 50% efficacious. There is only one available, and that's for leishmania amazonensis. That's a mouthful. Lysate, it, it's licensed for immunotherapy, but that's primarily a canine vaccine. Other than that, there hasn't been much success in humans. So here is a picture of the life cycle of leishmaniasis. So I will start with the female sandfly, and during feeding, uh, the metacyclic permastigotes get into the human, the dog, or the rat, and they actively invade macrophages, granulocytes, and their, or their phagocytosed. When they're phagocytosed, the permastigotes turn into amastigotes and multiply by simple division. And the amastigotes will infect new macrophages, and you will set up a little uh, factory making amastigotes within the mammal. And then the sandfly comes back into the picture and picks this up during feeding. The amastigotes are released into the midgut of the sandfly, and they're transformed back into promastigotes. And then they simply divide, and they migrate to the pharyngeal valve of the sandfly, and then the process starts all over again. Which this is kind of typical to what you see of, uh, uh, of basically insect-borne pathogens in the third world. Now here is the status of the endemicity of visceral leishmaniasis worldwide in 2012. As you can see, the U.S. is green population by no autochronous cases. It means that none were newly no, none were newly started there. If there are cases there, they came from somewhere else. And so you can see in South America, parts of Africa, India, and a little pocket of the Mideast and part of China is where a lot of the cases started. So here's an image of cutaneous leishmaniasis, and I, I chose to spare you because some of these pictures can be pretty horrifying to look at. And you can see the ulcer that's forming on the young girl's nose here, which will leave a scar unless there's some plastic surgery or something. And then here in the next picture is an example of visceral leishmaniasis, and you can see there's quite a bit of swelling, spleen, liver, and the mid-trunk, and obviously the child's malnourished. Now, leishmaniasis, there's an enzyme that's uh, peculiar to uh, the uh, metabolism of uh, this parasite, and that's the nucleoside hydrolases. And they're typically used in the DNA metabolism of bacteria, fungi, and protozoa as purine primitive scavenging pathways. It's important for the survival of the parasite. These nucleoside hydrolases are absent in mammals, so it makes a great target. And the LDNH36 nucleoside hydrolase is well-characterized component of leishmune, the canine vaccine, has been shown to be efficacious in mouse studies. And from what we've done, we, we design a recombinant work here around E. coli and Pichiopastoris in particular, because if you're gonna make a vaccine and you want to market it to the third world, you have to keep the cost down. So you're not gonna see CHO cells typically, you're not gonna see baculovirus, you're not gonna see tobacco and other vectors. And uh, E. coli would be preferable uh, because it's cheap to make and easy. And so we found that the enzyme can be expressed in both uh, coli and pastoris in a soluble form and the purification process can be scaled at minimal cost with known resins. So here's a little bit about the biophysics of it. Um, it's um, 321 amino acids, 314. Um, it depends, there's uh, a little bit of a cutback in, in one end of the molecule. A molecular weight of 34 to 36 kilodaltons typically, and theoretical PI of 6.24. And uh, you know, you see all the rest of the stuff. There's five cysteines, none of them seem to be problematic in expression and purification. And that's because if you look at the right side, there are no disulfide bonds from the crystal structure, which anyone who deals with uh, process development and purification, that's a very positive thing. And it's a globular protein, and it also forms multimers. Now, our general process production flow in E. coli, I'll show you E. coli and Pichia both, is you seed a culture in a 10 mil, 10 liter fermenter and add trace salts and media. You expand the culture at 37 degrees, you induce at 30 with IPTG, 
feed glycerol during induction and you harvest the biomass after induction. Extract, clarify, buffer exchange, and then initiate chromatography. Now for Picia, the first two steps are the same. You lower your temperature to 30 degrees, you induce with methanol, you feed prior to induction, harvest the supernatant after induction, filtration, buffer exchange, and chromatography. So they're pretty similar, except for any E. coli, you're going to deal with less volume than Picia pastoris, where you're gonna deal with a lot of volume. Now, this is a summary of the upstream process fermentation for E. coli and LDNH 36. You set up the fermenter with 10 liters of bacterial fermentation media. You set up one layer seed culture and grow overnight for use in the inoculation. After overnight incubation, you seed culture and you check the OD 600. Increase glucose and fermentation media from 10 gram to 15 gram per liter and inoculate the fermenter so its starting density is about 0.02 and then grow to about 0.25, which was approximately four hours. Drop the temperature to 30 degrees and continue. When the OD reaches 0.8, you add IPTG to one millimolar, and then you induce overnight, and then you harvest the biomass. It's pretty standard, straightforward procedure that in a typical fermenter. And this is central quantitative analysis of the fermentation. I'm not gonna calculate out all the numbers for you. Uh, you can do this at home if you like, but in essence, you can see if you look at lane three, uh, you can see that your material is pretty good expression after induction. And then the pre-induction is in lane two. And as this is diluted out, we compare against BSA standards and you end up with um, 37 grams of biomass per liter and about 283 milligram per liter equivalent of our expressed protein. And the upstream process summary is on this slide sums up just what I said. So the total theoretical yield from a 10 liter fermentation is approximately 2.8 grams. Now we'll go into the exploratory process development of LDNH36. And um, I will uh, not only discuss what we did, but give you some pointers on things you might want to think of. When I started out, when I got out of graduate school at University of Chicago about 200 years ago, I, uh, ended up going into protein purification and process development, and then later went into proteomics and then into more discovery related topics. And you start to learn the tricks of doing things and that uh, in uh, the younger days, it would seem that many purification papers would pick, pick columns and techniques randomly and you would start with an ocean of protein and end up with nothing. And uh, in the biotherapeutic world, you can't do that or you won't have a company very long. So, in the purification of LDNH 36, I wanna point out this is done without a his tag, which a lot of people have gotten very used to for simple purifications. The his tag is fine until you have to put it into humans. And then there's a lot of questions as to what, that, what, what could that do? If it were say antigenic, you may get a response and uh, neutralize your drug. And so the pharmacokinetics would be totally thrown off. So the his tag goes. Now in the exploratory process development, one of the things that you do is a biologist starts to think like an engineer. You wanna minimize your volume, you wanna prefractionate and clarify, and you wanna optimize your capture step. Your capture step is your first, your first hit that you're gonna take and you wanna make it a good one. So you wanna get a lot of material with minimal loss and you wanna minimize the amount of columns and buffers. The more you use, the more you lose. Points to consider in initial process feed, as I've said before, reduce volume, capture efficiency. You wanna eliminate protein contaminants. You wanna eliminate DNA, lipids, if possible, and feed contaminant elimination in particular. If you were in yeast, chromophores and media constituents are a problem, they'll affect your capture. And if you want to recycle your resin, it can be problematic because you can stain your resin and uh, then you have to throw it out. So the volume reduction and capture. First step, dye filtration or fractionation. You can use a hollow fiber or a flat plate, the choice depending on the viscosity of the starting material. You can cut your material with ammonium sulfate, which is an old technique, but still works. Polyethylene amine or biocryl to precipitate or fractionate. You can also pH adjust or, um, you know, for conductivity or to clarify. 
And an example, and I've done this in the past on cytokines, you make your supernatant, if you're dealing with yeast, 0.2% TFA by volume and run onto reverse phase or cation exchange. And um, you can also um, adjust the conductivity and capture onto IEX. Um, you can dilute, you can add salt. And uh, sometimes if you're lucky, particularly with yeast broth in the past, I found when I was working with GMCSF, that um, the yeast broth was very, very uh, saline and uh, had a conductivity of two to two something anyway. Um, and so it was, it was just perfect to put onto a hydrophobic interaction column, but that's something you don't know until you start down the process. And also, when you think about you're going to transfer this to someone, time is more important than the cost of resin. So you gotta consider time and you're manufacturing something, you're making a lot of material in a plant, you're paying for lights, you're paying for air conditioning, you're paying for electricity. So you gotta consider rapid ways to do things. And I won't talk about it in too much detail, but you might wanna consider radial flow chromatography for rapid capture. Most chromatography columns you're used to function in the axial domain. They go up and down through the resin. Radial flow goes through the side of the resin. So the surface area is increased dramatically. So you can run your column like a fire hose and uh, your first step is done in minutes instead of hours. And you should also uh, consider step pollution for capture and initial purification. And I'll tell you on that in a second. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Ion exchange capture is usually the first step. Now, step versus solution, why you should do that instead of like a linear gradient. Gradients add to complexity, complexity and expense in manufacturing. Your instrumentation has to be complementary, and that's a little tough. So let's just say you've got your basic GE ECTA machine in the lab. Well, you want to transfer that to maybe a biopilot, or you want to transfer that up to one of GE's bigger uh, machines. Not everybody has this stuff, and it makes things challenging. And if you're trying to keep this down, many people will simply use a master flex pump, a UV monitor, and a chart recorder. And uh, yes, people still do that in manufacturing. So to make things simple to where they will transfer, you probably want to use steps rather than linear gradient. So steps can be various kinds. There's a simple step. You bump with 0.1 molar salt, 0.2 molar salt, 0.3 molar salt, and so forth. Or you can stair steps, hit with 0.1, hold, 0.2, and hold, and so on. <clears throat> now, a long time ago, there was a guy named Bob Tijon at Berkeley who purified quite a few transcription factors. And... Um, a lot of these papers were in cell. And he did something a bit unusual. He used overlapping steps where he would use 0.1 molar, then he'd go to 0.3 molar, then he'd go back to 0.2 molar, and then up to 0.4 molar, and so on. These are rarely seen, and they're, they're not reproducible generally in manufacturing. Some people have tried to do them. I know that there have been some literature put out there in the, in the IP domain that's now public by... Uh, Genentech that uh, they have used overlapping steps to isolate a charge variant of an antibody, but it's very rare and chances are it's artifactual. Now here's the purification development scheme that I use for the LDNH36 and E. coli. We lyse the cells in a microfluidizer and about 20,000 PSI, two or three passes, and then we ammonium sulfate precipitate and resuspend in 20 millimolar Tris HCl. And then we dye filter to 20 millimolar Tris HCl, 10 volumes, and check the conductivity against our capture buffer and load the column at just less than 10 mg per mil capacity. And it's captured on a QXL anion exchange column. And we use step gradients, very small ones, 25, 75, and 125 millimolar salt. And we evaluate our fractions by SDS Page and Western. Uh, our sample is concentrated greater than one mg per mil. We put it on a gel filtration and onto SuperDex S200. At that point, it's suitable for formulation. However, I, I typically add a step where I do a small 
flow through on a Q column to depyrogenate, particularly if I've been in E. coli. So the process is using barriers. You start with E. coli lysate, you've got all types of contaminants. And the initial process stream host cell proteins and media constituents. In capture, we have efficiency in the E. coli background. Uh, there's enough stuff out there that you don't get the column capacity that the manufacturer tells you because you are not doing this with a BSA standard. You're doing this with loads of other things that are going to compete on the binding isotherm. And then you polish. It's clean, but you usually take a hit in yield, particularly when you use the size exclusion resins. A lot of people don't like using them in industry. They talk about they, they, they don't want to use them, but they do use them. And then you do a depyrogenation typically if you're going into animals, and that's to remove bacterial endotoxin in the background. Quantify. This is what this is where I'm going to get into how much is how much do you really have? And 280 and Bradford are not necessarily accurate. And the old gold standard was amino acid analysis using the extinction coefficient. But try and find somebody who does amino acid analysis these days. Try and find someone who actually sells the instrument. And um, you find that uh, every assay has its caveats. So when you, when you dose an animal, you want to know pretty accurately what you have. So here's the LDNS page of the ammonia sulfate precipitated LDNH36. And you can see in lane two is our lysate. And the, uh, the target molecules pointed out here on the graph. Then you see the supernatant going from 40% to 60%. And you will notice lanes four and six, we were able to remove probably DNA and some other things that were going to be problematic in the purification. And um, then we get down to seven, and that's the post-dialysis load that we're going to put on the queue. So that's our starting material, which looks pretty good for just starting out in the process. Now, here is the chromatogram from the QXL. And you can see the captures achieved. And the target protein diluted a very low salt step. It's a sharp peak with a, a shoulder right prior to that. It tails off pretty nicely. And then we go through other, other steps in here to remove other contaminants and then clean off the column in the end. And here's the LDS page of this. You can see your starting material in lane two and the flow through as you're going along. And by the time you get to about uh, the 10th or 11th lane, which we took, I believe, every third fraction here, you can start to see some bleed through of LDNH36. And then we start our, um, our gradient, 2.5%. We get a little bleed through of the molecule. The bulk of it comes at 7.5%. So we took here from about 15 on to 21 as our cut from this column. And then as you go up in gradient steps, you can see you get a whole heck of a lot of other junk off of there as well. And now you put this on the Cefacryl S200 and uh, you see it runs as a tetramer, and which is uh, predictable from crystallography. And uh, it's relatively clean. You see a few little peaks and valleys down here. Here's the material we have, and this is what came off the column in three, and we concentrated this about threefold, and um, in lane five, and the westerns are down below. You see some multipers in the blot, and those are confirmed to be product related. And um, so we're not really concerned at this point because we're just using this for animals. Now, here's where we get to the interesting fact of just how much stuff really do we have? And uh, process quantification practices, people get used to technology, they get used to kits. A lot of times they don't think about, what am I really doing here? So I start this out like, do you know where your nanodrop has been? Now, unless you're in a GMP lab where no one off the street can walk in and use your nanodrop, you're at the whim of everybody that works around you. And a lot of people aren't particularly clean. So the measurements are only accurate on the final pool as well. You cannot go to a nanodrop with impure sample and expect to get a meaningful number. So I, I put um, 
I put the boat from uh, Forrest Gump here on the right because that's basically what our nanodrop looks like at the end of the day. So the measures are only accurate on the final product, but like I say, are they? So what do you do? Well, we decided to look at these and we took some samples and we measured them in triplicate by Bradford with BSA and then nanodrop. And look at the numbers we got. They're quite different and they're really all over the place. And so maybe amino acid analysis would be a better on the final product, but as I said, amino acid analysis is not easy to come by these days. So what do you do? And there's gotta be a better way. In, in previous times, if you go into journals like Journal of Biological Chemistry and some of those, you'll see purification tables. And you can construct a table if you have some kind of assay to assay your target protein within the background. Usually it was an enzymatic assay. You can do an immunoassay, but you have to qualify that assay as well. So how do you, how do, you do this through the process? Well, here's an interesting little paper uh, from some people at Waters that have been doing mass spec forever. And it's called the high three method. And so the high three method, you put in a standard, a known standard in the sample, and then you, you do your digestions, you run your LCMS, and you look for the three most intense triptych peptides per mole of protein. And so it's a very, very good and very accurate way to determine what's there because you do have an internal standard. But also you can look at something in an impure background, which is very, very valuable. And mass spec has gotten a lot easier and it's gotten less expensive than it was. Uh, the mass spec here, this is from Waters, this is actually a micromass mass spec and uh, micromass used to be VG biophysins, which was considered the gold standard. Now it's integrated within the Waters instrumentation. So you don't really have to jury rig the entire setup yourself. I was one of the original people in applied genomics at Bristol Myers when it was created and we had all kinds of instruments. We made our own columns, micro columns. Uh, we, we created our own software and uh, one person put together a cluster of 20 deck alphas to basically crunch all the data. And it was a pretty complicated scenario and this was usually done on Linux. Now you can get these in one box instruments. So here are the results from the high three quantification of the equivalent pools. And I'm not gonna go through all this stuff because I don't want people to fall asleep, but here, what you see is there the alcohol dehydrogenase standard and you have a score, you have your products, your digest peptides that came out, the amount in functimoles and nanograms basically derived from this. Now we have to make assumptions. You verify that the protein assay you start with is accurate and you assume the protein, not let's not say accurate, but consistent. And you assume the protein was cut to completion by trypsin digestion and 100% of the peptides were recovered. You load the equivalent of 20 nanograms of total protein onto an LC column based on assumptions one and two. <clears throat> and you assume that all proteins identified by the mass spec are full length relative to their sequence as listed in the database and not truncations. So the bottom line here is with your internal standard, of course, the number one hit here is gonna be nucleoside hydrolase, or LDNH36. And there's trace amounts of other things. So what this tells me when we calculate the numbers back is sample one is 93.6% pure based on mass spec, which is gonna be very, very sensitive. And comparing the ratio of expected to observe based on what you calculate in your protein assay, does this correlate well with our protein assay? And yes, it does. It's 1.05 correlation on the sample two. We're at 97% purity, 1.02. Now we go to sample three. We're also in correlation and we're at 96% purity. Sample four, 96%, 1.04 correlation and five and six, so on. So they're very pure to start with. And your purification, you could not see this level of purification by just looking at a gel, even if you put it in a scanner. So it's, it's pretty sensitive. 
and it's very consistent. And um, we know we have clean material here. Now, what we can say at this point is the expression E. coli gives us a viable target. The anion exchange binding is appropriate. It's still not optimal. I would switch this out to radial flow instead of axial flow. And uh, there's probably room to enhance the binding. And um, the high three results are within 5% of Bradford and can quantify in a dirty background. So here's our purification table based on this type of methodology. And we start with lysate supernatant and um, list the total protein concentration, mg per mil, total protein. Then we start measuring how much LDNH36E is there. And um, we have 579 migs to start with. QXL, here we are at 481. We have 83% recovery at that step. And then the S200 is where we take our hit. And this is something that is an issue. It's a polishing step. It's not a, it, it's a size exclusion chromatography, but typically unless you're running standards at very mild uh, concentration and very clean, you're not going to get fractionation by molecular weight so much as you're gonna get polishing. And then in the end, we do a depyrogenation and we end up with 64% recovery at that step, but we basically purged out the endotoxin that was there. Okay, now let's go into, does this stuff work? There's a mouse study, immunological design that we did with a collaborator in Mexico and you immunize mice. Two weeks later, you immunize them again, give them a boost. And then you start to look for things, anti-NH, 36 antibodies, interferon gamma and interleukin-4 production after stimulation with NH36 from E. coli, and leishmania antigen, which is just basically ground up leishmania. And the groups they have are NH36 plus GLA, which is an adjuvant, and NH36 and GLA alone. Now, for those not in the vaccine industry, why do you use adjuvants? Well, if you stick a protein in the body, typically the immune system sees it and it's done with. What you wanna do is you wanna set it up to where you have a gradual release of this material to where you can amount a prolonged immune response. So that's why vaccines have adjuvant. And there's different types of adjuvants now. I've, uh, we've had some engineers here in the past that uh, are doing microparticle work and all sorts of things to improve adjuvanicity of uh, vaccines. And these poor guys get immunized in the ear, uh, poor things. So we take a look, and here's the anti-LDNH36 antibody response achieved with antigen alone, with or without adjuvant. And you can see on the left, you see the IgG, uh, NH36 plus GLA. Um, you see a good response, but you see a good response with the NH36 alone no response particularly with the adjuvant. Then you see IgG1, pretty good too. And then IgD2, you see also what you would hope to expect. So you are getting a response against the antigen. Now, looking at cytokine producing T cells, um, on the left, you look at interferon, gamma, and on the right, you look at IL-4. And same thing, we are looking at GLA and NH36. And these are basically challenging with leishmania or the same recombinant NH36 that we vaccinated against. So you do get a response and you get a response of interferon gamma and IL-4, but most prominently in this graph, it looks like the interferon gamma. Now to evaluate protection, against infection Leishmania Mexicana, you um, look at foot pad swelling. And uh, the foot pad swelling is, is, is too variable. It's in uh, chart A here, and you can't really detect too much difference here. However, on the right, the parasite burden in the lesions indicates a significant difference between the vaccine and the control group. 
And you're probably wondering, I'm jumping between all these various leash manias, why? When you do a vaccine project, you like to look at heterologous challenge. And this takes me back to hepatitis work I did in the past. You want to, in your studies, inject with one, one strain and challenge with another. Because if you've got protection across strains, that's a good deal. If you don't, it's probably not going to be a viable vaccine. And, um, but as a control, you would probably want to do a homologous challenge in your early studies. So here in B, you see the NH36 and GLA. It has, the parasite equivalent has dropped due to the fact the animal's been vaccinated. And then less so with just the angelone. And you see next to it, the GLA, and then there's saline there, which doesn't have any effect at all. So this appears to work pretty well in a heterologous challenge. Now the antibody response of the antibodies immunized with the LGH36 and then challenged with Mexicana. You see in graph A, IgG levels, graph B, IgG levels against LDNH36. Not quite as stunning with the heterologous challenge here on A, but on B, you know, it's hopefully what you would expect. It recognizes what you stuck it with. So to summarize the mouse studies, the LDNH36 with or without adjuvant generates a low humoral immune response, a low IgG response. Addition of the GLA-SE tends to elicit higher IgG2 to IgG1 ratio. The addition of the adjuvant contributes to a strong cellular response. So you've got interferon gamma producing cells favored over IL-4 producing cells. And that's consistent with the Th1 response, which is something people look for in vaccine studies. So this data is in agreement with previous studies other people have done with the dog and other, uh, other mammals. And it showed protective efficacy against Leishmania Chag Chagasai and Mexicana. The immunization, immunization with the LDNH36 formulated GLASE, our new adjuvant, confers a strong reduction in par parasite burden. So the conclusions in general, LDNH36 represents a viable candidate for human leishmaniasis vaccine. As leishmaniasis represents a neglected tropical disease, it's imperative to develop a low-cross process to generate a successful human vaccine. The vaccine candidate is readily generated in E. coli, and I haven't shown the Pichia pastoris. The process is robust and reproducible. Analysis is accurate and can be monitored in a heterogeneous stream. And the high three analysis circumvents the use of affinity tags. I'm sure you've seen iTrack, iCat, and some of the others, and they have their issues. And uh, this is an easy way. You can simply buy this internal standard from Waters. No surprise, they published it. And the LDNH36, generates a strong cell-mediated immunity. The process does need some fine-tuning prior to technical transfer, but at this point, it's good enough to get it into animals to see if we can go on from there into humans. And so for acknowledgments, I will show you the paper. This came out in Protein Expression and Purification uh, this year, early 2017. And there I am in the beginning. And um, Chris Side did the... Uh, the upstream process. Molly Hammond helped uh, both downstream and upstream. Elisa Hudspeth does the downstream. Brian Keegan injects the animals. Chu Yen did some of the enzymatic work. So did Jun Fei, and they're part of Ben's group that uh, did the initial cloning. And then we had our immunology collaborators, Raul Vladimir and Eric Dumontel in Mexico, and Tulane, who did the immunology work. And we have our Dean, Peter Hotez, who very well known, he's put out some op-eds in the New York Times on vaccines and uh, recently was Forbes or Fortune named one of the 35 most prominent people in medicine in the country. Uh, he's really quite an amazing guy. I don't think he sleeps. And then Maria Elena Botazzi is the associate Dean and my boss here. And um, so this is the paper. If you wanna read details or know more, I'd suggest you look this up. And for those people out there who are at the beginning of their career, I started out years ago working in various labs and universities. And I went over to Monsanto when recombinant DNA was new. And um, it was uh, 
it looked like a pretty cool world in biotech. So that's where I ended up going there in major pharma after I got out of graduate school. And then as time's gone on, I've gone back to academics because I like the discovery aspect and the aspect of applying pure fun to something tangible that people can use. So that's my seminar. I'll be happy to take questions. Thank you, Patrick, and hello to you all again. As the chairperson for this webinar, I will now give you a brief presentation on behalf of Dr. Shelley Amants, a marketing specialist for Genscript USA Incorporated. This presentation will be about Genscript and some of the services they offer. Headquartered in Piscataway, New Jersey, Genscript is the world's leading biology research service company. They are internationally recognized as a leading contract research organization specializing in biological research and early phase drug discovery services. They provide services and products to scientists in 86 countries around the world. They have built the best in class capacity and capability for biological research services, encompassing gene synthesis and molecular biology, peptide synthesis, custom antibodies, protein expression, antibody and protein engineering, and in vitro and in vivo pharmacology, all with the goal to make research easy. More than 13,000 peer-reviewed journal articles have cited Genscript services and products, making Genscript the most frequently cited biology contract research organization in the world. To quickly give you an overview of Genscript's track record, they have delivered over 6,000 batches of high-quality proteins and over 1,500 batches of purified recombinant antibodies to date, to over 40,000 customers in more than 80 countries around the world. Genscript's aggregate success rate for all projects is over 92%, and when it comes to recombinant proteins, they have successfully produced a variety of target types, as you can see in this chart below. Genscript offers expression services in four different hosts, bacteria, insect, mammalian cells and yeast, for your recombinant protein needs. They have a variety of services for each, but since the webinar has focused on the development of recombinant protein vaccine in E. coli, we will take some time to look at the bacterial expression services in a little more detail. The BackPower Guaranteed Bacterial Protein Expression Services offer a comprehensive panel of options for your target protein production in an E. coli system with guaranteed protein amounts, purities, as well as endotoxin levels to meet a variety of your research needs, especially for protein antigen production and vaccine candidate screening. The BackPower Customized Bacterial Protein Expression is perfect for higher difficulty targets such as membrane proteins, ion channel proteins, etc. Before we go to the question and answer session, I will show you a slide with a link to Genscript's website and their contact information. If you have any questions or feedback, you can reach out to the Senior Marketing Specialist whose email is joannax at genscript.com and it is listed on the bottom here. Also, it would be great if you could please take a moment to complete a quick poll right after the webinar to tell us how you liked the presentation. Your candid feedback will help Genscript to improve their services. Okay. Patrick, that was a wonderful presentation. We do have a few questions from the audience at this time. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen, and I will try to get to as many questions as possible. So first up, we have a couple of questions from Manuel Camaco. So first of all, he asks, uh, would it, wouldn't it be better to avoid the use of IPTG in an industrial process? Um. Actually not. It's commonly used. And it's clarified at the end. It's clarified at the end. You, you have to understand that if you do use something like that, you have to show that you get rid of it. And uh, one of the things that really brings us home is there's a study you can find online called AMAB, which, although it's not E. coli, it's CHO cells, and it's several of the biotherapeutic companies got together and did a case study start to finish and all the validation in between. And uh, that's, you can use whatever you want as long as it's not there at the end. Thank you. Um, from the same person, another question. Would it be better to use a secretion tag for E. coli to avoid the lysis step and simplify the separation process? And if so, are there any secretion tags that would be better? Well, people, uh, have, people have done this in the past, but they haven't really caught on. Uh, typically, it's considered easier. You get more protein. It's more concentrated if you lyse the cells. Um, and although it's something people really don't like to work with, a lot of times you get inclusion bodies 
which they can and cannot be good because if you can lyse coli and have an inclusion body, you've got something that's pretty clean to start with. You just have to refold it if you can. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and I suppose this is another question about the the uh, the steps involved in in designing the um, I guess the expression vector. Um, why didn't you use a cleavage site before the his tag so that you could get rid of the his tag? That is the last question from Manuel. You don't use that on scale. It'd be okay. too costly. Okay. That's pretty straightforward answer. <laughs> yeah, people people are, are married to their his tags and uh, their kits, but I mean, and that's great for bench scale. It makes things quick and easy to make a determination, but as you move into scale, it becomes a more complicated world. Sure. Thanks for that. Um, we have a question from Marta. So Marta would like to know, how do you depyrogenate the protein? You There's two ways. You can buy these various resins that will pull out based on lipopolysaccharide affinity. But the quickest, easiest way to do is just take a Q column, an anion exchange resin, and set up the condition where your protein flows through. And typically, the endotoxin binds a lot stronger. OK. Thanks for that. A few more questions. Um, one from Aska Shaheen. Uh, which E. coli strain are you using? Um, can you tell us that? Oh, it's a, it's a common one. It's 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 a common one you buy from uh, you know what the what the heck the the people out in California okay, used to be so in Vitrogen, yeah. So it's nothing special about that strain. No, no not for us. Okay. Then we have another question from Nobuhuki Matoba. Um, what is the most expensive step in the E. coli production process that you showed? Most expensive step? Um, well, at scale, I would say that's probably your gel filtration, your size exclusion. Uh, that resin is not cheap. And if you're doing that at scale, it can be kind of costly. What we want to do in the future is look at filtration. And in fact, we've actively got a collaboration going on because uh, while people do use this technique, as I said, nobody likes using it. It's uh, costly to do. Okay, great. We have another question coming in here from Jiang Vu Vitran. Uh, they want to know, why do we do immunization in the ear? Can it be done in in another part of the animal? I, I'm not the immunization guy. Okay. I was surprised <laughs> myself. I was just curious too. So yeah. I thought poor question. thing. Yeah. Okay. And then we have another question from Aska Shaheen. Um, can we engineer viable candidates for vaccines against different strains of any pathogens in theory, I suppose? Uh, what about in reality? Well, I think so. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have much of a vaccine business. And, no. Uh, I, I, I do think that, um, I do think this is where we get back to the heterologous challenge. Mm. I mean, there are, back when I was doing the hepatitis work and I, I did some helicobacter work as well, it is absolutely imperative that you pick a standard strain that you think will basically be global in its recognition. And that way the other strains can be protect, you can protect against them. And yes. that's the trial and error process of vaccinology. It's not quick and dirty and out the door. Yeah. Okay. And then I have a question for okay. you. Um, where, what is the biggest pitfall in this whole process? Where can it really go wrong? Well, I think it's pretty cut and dried. I think where it can go wrong is the parasites are a little different than viruses, a little different than bacteria. Mm -hmm. And in bacteria, for instance, there's a really, really good vaccine out there called Prevnar 13 that was years in the making. And um, it's 13 different strains. It protects against per, per 13 different, basically, immunogens from pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Now, when you get into parasites, they go through life cycles. So at one point in their life cycle, they may be recognized in some ways at other points where they may not be. So you go to the permastigote versus the amastigote, mm -hmm. and... Uh, your immune system is going to be seeing something different. 
So yes. how do you immunize against that? And for all of you, probably malaria comes to mind. That's one of the big challenges of having a malaria vaccine is yeah. the cycle that it goes through. And yet malaria yeah. kills a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's I can see that that's a that's a challenge. All right. I have uh, two more questions um, and that will probably bring us to the end of the Q&A session. So we have a question from Nikki who would like to know what is the size of the monomer and the tetramer of LDNH36? Okay, the monomers are around 36 kilodaltons and the tetramers four times that. So you know, basically 100, what is it, 120 to 140 in that range. Okay, great. And then the final question for now, in the case of Piscia pastoris, um, did you still need to lyse the cells or did you use some kind of no, secretion no, we just signal there? The we, just, we just use the beer. And um, I'm going to suggest that anybody that goes down that road with Piscia or Saccharomyces, um, from work that I did years ago on the cytokines that were at Immunex and then made it to Amgen, uh, check, check your broth carefully because uh, that's we could not see our product and then we checked the salinity and the thing was like the great salt sea so we thought forget ion exchange go to hydrophobic interaction and that was pretty much a two-step purification so uh, you deal with a lot of volume with picia but you, if it's secreted it's usually active and you're you're almost there okay great thanks for that that pretty much brings us to the end of the question and answer session, which means we're also at the end of the seminar. So thanks again, Patrick, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, GenScript. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you will also be able to see the other webinars that we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at GenScript and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 